0: Gift by the elders and pastoral and office staff. Uh, It was a voucher to swim with the sharks at South Queensferry at the deep sea world. And uh, last Saturday I finally took the plunge. You were allowed to take two free guests so I took my son and daughter Ben and Becky who took some photographs which you're about to see. It's an interesting experience. If you've never been there, this is not really a plug for it and I don't get any commission, but uh, I'd recommend it to you. Uh, First of all, the the guide took us in this really long tunnel, over 100 metres long. It's one of the longest uh, tunnels of its kind. uh, Thick acrylic, uh, so it doesn't break or anything like that. Uh, One of the longest in Europe. And we viewed the place where we were going to dive in with the sharks. And uh, they introduced us to all the different sharks we'd see And this is the longest one, ten and a half feet long, which was called, I think very inappropriately, it's named Tinkerbell. uh, By the staff, I assume, not by the shark itself. Uh, Then, out of the crowds of people who were looking at this and hearing this talk, myself and another guy, who was also being given a gift to dive with the sharks, we were taken off from the crowd to a separate small room behind the scenes and sat down with the instructor who gave us some clear instructions about what we should do and what we should expect. And particularly the hand signals that you were to use when you're underwater. Because obviously you can't talk when you're underwater and you've got a breathing thing in, you, in your mouth. And uh, I was saying to the children this morning, one of the most confusing ones is that that doesn't mean okay, that means get me out of here quick. Uh, okay is that. And it's quite a job just to remember that. And the guy nudges you, uh, a flatfish nipped me on the finger and he went to me, you know, okay. And I went, yeah, I know, no, no, that one, that's right. Anyway, we were finally kitted out with all the clothes and the dry suit and the mask and, and, and the, the breathing apparatus and everything else, uh, told what to do in an emergency. And finally, this was a practice in a small swimming pool off the side, and then they lifted this gate and you go down to this rope which descends into the tunnel. It's 10 feet deep. And as you go down, you keep stopping to breathe while your ears pop and you get rid of your headache and all that kind of stuff. Okay? And finally, uh, we got down into the bottom uh, to dive with the sharks. And uh, everyone took lots of pictures of us uh, down there. And after 30 minutes in the tunnel, we finally returned to the surface uh, and I got my... um, There I am again. I got my certificate... There should be a picture of my certificate somewhere that said I actually did it, for those who don't believe it. Now, what's this got to do with Mark's Gospel? All right, this is an illustration, all right? So just just stay with me. I think it it does work and it may help us to understand what we're looking at this evening. On Sunday evenings, we've been following uh, the Gospel account of the life of Jesus written by this doctor called Luke under the title, Good News of Great Joy for All the People. Now imagine, crowds of people are gathering around Jesus, attracted by his marvellous miracles, his powerful preaching. Yet, out of those crowds of people, Jesus chooses twelve disciples to be with him and to learn from him. And we've been seeing some of the instruction that Jesus has been giving to these disciples. A disciple is a learner, someone who's being taught. And what I want to suggest to you, as we turn to our series this evening, uh, that what Luke is now doing is the crowds have faded into the background, the disciples have got all this teaching from Jesus, but now they're about to put it into practice. Jesus is going to take them into situations where they learn from Him and about Him. And we're going to see that although it begins with a boat trip, they don't face sharks, because the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake, for those who didn't know. Uh, But what they do face, and within a 24-hour period, they're going to face... Danger, demons, disease and death. Four things beginning with D. And we're going to look at the first two of these this evening and God willing next week we'll look at the second two and then we have a break for the summer, God willing, Lord tarrying and we come then to chapter 9. And when you come to chapter 9 what you discover, Jesus then sends them out on their own with authority to heal the sick To cast out demons. Now, I think that's where Luke is going in this gospel. That's what he's trying to show us. So, let's look at these first two challenges. I've called it learning with Jesus, learning from Jesus, facing danger and demons. Uh, So, turn in your Bibles. It really will help to have a Bible in front of you. uh, Luke chapter 8. And we're going to read verse 16 through to verse uh, 39, I think it is. Last week, the first part of chapter 8 is the problem of the sower. Jesus links this together with the next two sections. In, In the NIV you'll see it. A lamp on a stand, Jesus' mother, brothers. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully... How you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. One day Jesus said to his disciples, "'Let's go over to the other side of the lake.' So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, "'Master, Master, we're going to drown.' He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. "'Where is your faith?' he asked the disciples." In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in the house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under God, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not, not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, our reading begins with a warning. Did you notice that? To listen carefully how you hear. Because the Word of God is like a light shining in darkness. It will expose everything that's hidden. And if you don't respond in the right way, you will lose what little truth you already have. And Jesus goes on to say that those who are in the closest relationship with Him are not His natural relatives, but those who hear the Word of God, put it into practice. So you need to listen carefully and put into practice God's Word. So it's important then, we're going to turn them moment to these two incidents, that we need God's help to do that, to focus on that. So let's just pray for a moment and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to listen carefully this evening, so take from our minds other things that might distract us from listening carefully. Some of us have a little understanding so far, grant that we may not lose what we already have or think we have. Some of us have a lot of knowledge, but not much practice. Help us to be those who put your word into practice, even what we hear and learn this evening. And Therefore, we need your help, and I need the help of your Holy Spirit to explain your word carefully and clearly, and we all need your help to put it into practice, actively, decisively, immediately. So help us, we pray. Amen. Well, let's look at these two incidents before we turn and come around the Lord's table. Uh, First of all, we begin with this storm on the Lake of Galilee and the first challenge which the disciples encounter, which is facing danger. If you look at the text in front of you, Luke simply says one day to describe when this incident took place. If you read Mark's account, and this is mentioned in Matthew, Mark and Luke, you'll find that Mark tells us it happened after this full day of teaching... And parables about the Word of God and how you respond to it. One of the great dangers we face in a church like this, where the preaching and teaching of God's Word is central, that we can come to think that hearing God's Word, listening to sermons, or even preaching them is enough. It never is. There is a world of difference between teaching and learning. And though the disciples don't know it, they're about to learn a very important lesson, which is, as it were, part of their discipleship training course. For this, I want you to notice, first of all, is a planned trip. Look at verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. The plan of Jesus is not only to cross the lake to save a needy man on the other side of the lake, but also to save needy disciples on the lake itself. And the first thing the disciples need, and we need to learn, is that if we follow Jesus, if we're following his directions, if we're keeping in touch with his plan for our lives, then we need fear no situation we may encounter, for he is with us. Now, we all if you're a Christian, if you've been in Charlotte Chapel any length of time, you're probably nodding your head and saying, yeah, yeah, know it, know it, know it. You see it's one thing to say, Romans 8:28, "And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, been called according to His purpose, it's quite another to put that into reality. For some of us, verses like that are like bumper stickers, and that's all. And so it was with the disciples. As part way through the crossing end of the southern part of the lake, they face a challenge to faith. That is a challenge to their trust in Jesus. And I want you to notice very simply. There are two factors which combine to make this a challenge. The first is not an obvious challenge. The first challenge is what I would call, it's easy to remember this way, a sleeping saviour. Look how it starts. As they sailed, he, that is Jesus, fell asleep. Jesus was not only fully God, he was fully man. He was exhausted, he was tired, he slept like anyone else. And so he fell asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion, I think one of the other Gospels tells us. And no doubt the disciples weren't at all bothered by this fact. Some of them were experienced fishermen who'd spent their working lives on this lake. No problem at all. Let him sleep. We don't need his help with this boat. That is, until suddenly and unexpectedly they're faced with a life-threatening crisis. As as well as this Challenge has two parts to it, the sleeping Saviour and a serious situation. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Jesus and his disciples are on this sea. It's sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Luke calls it a lake. Uh, the Lake of Tiberius. it was called. Uh, the Hebrew word for it was Gennesaret or Kinneroth. Uh, it's the Hebrew word for a harp because if you look at the lake, it's kind of shaped like a harp you've got a good imagination. Now, most of the time, if you have been to Israel, it's a wonderful place and, and most of the time it looks very placid and very calm but appearances can be misleading. Let me just read you an easy way to do this. Uh, some information from uh, one of these Bible handbooks. Uh, listen carefully. Like a giant bowl of water among the hills of Galilee lies the Sea of Galilee. Thirteen miles long, seven miles wide. This is no ordinary lake, but an inward inland sea capable of quick and violent storms. At the surface, the Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level. This makes it easy for winds blowing down across the land of Galilee from the Mediterranean, from the hills surrounding the lake, to come rushing down the hillsides to stir up the sea as if someone was stirring a large bowl of water with a spoon. Within a very short time, a storm can arise. Now, I would imagine that at least four of those disciples who'd fished on this lake had been here before. Peter and Andrew, James and John. But this squall is exceptional in its ferocity. In fact, the word used in Greek for squall there is a word used for a whirlwind or or like an earthquake on water. And the waves suddenly begin to sweep over the boat and threaten to swamp it. Their lives are in real danger. So much so that they make an emergency appeal. Not to the Galilee Lifeboat Service because they didn't have one. uh, But to Jesus. The disciples went and woke him and said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Here's the question. Is the Master still Master of this situation? Or is he out of control? Ever been there? As Christian, something happens? And suddenly you think Jesus is Well, he's asleep, but he's not actively involved. And you wonder, is he really master of this? Maybe you're in a situation like that this evening in your life. And you're asking questions. Is he really master? Can he cope with this? Now, notice the response of Jesus. Two things. He rebukes the wind and waters and all is calm. Verse 24. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. But he also rebukes the disciples and they're afraid and amazed. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the wind and the water, and they obey Him. Who is it? Well, there's no spoken answer, but the answer is absolutely clear. The answer to the question is clearly this. Jesus is Lord. You see, you need to know a little bit about what the Hebrews thought about the sea. The Hebrews and Jews are not good sailors, certainly at this time of their history. For the Jew, the sea represents all that is unpredictable, threatening, even death itself. They knew that you couldn't control the wind and waves. Only one person could control the wind and waves, God himself. So, the Hebrew hymn book, the book of Psalms, is full of this. It's Psalm 89 as an example. O Lord, God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord. Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waters mount up, you still them. And the greatest example, of course, historically, was when God parted the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites passed through on dry ground. But the pursuing Egyptian army was overwhelmed. Now, as soon as Jesus does this, they ask the question Who is this? Answer He is Lord, He is God. They had no need to doubt. In his Jean Luke, Howard Marshall writes, the point of the story is not simply that Jesus could still the storm, but rather that the disciples should have trusted his power to help them. Here's the big test. Faced with an unpredictable, life-threatening situation. Let me just make a couple of points before we move on to the second story. First of all, the Lordship of Jesus does not just apply to the sea and journeys by boat. Jesus is Lord in any and every situation. And if we are following him, we can trust him whenever and whatever storms may arise. Now again, I'm aware how easy it is to say this. And yet something unexpected comes along that threatens our security and immediately we begin to wonder, is Jesus in control? Can I trust him? Secondly, this story does not provide a blanket assurance that a Christian will never be lost at sea or shipwrecked. In fact, if you know your Bible, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one other story of a storm at sea in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, near the end of the book of Acts, chapter 27, there's a violent storm at sea. The sea is not calm. There's a 14-day storm and it ends with a shipwreck. Now, what we have promised and what Paul promised to those in that boat, if you read the story, is the assurance of God's Word in that particular situation, in the storm and over the storm. In it all, through it all, Christ is with us. In another commentary, the Bible speaks today, commentary on John, Michael Wilcox writes, the disciples of Christ are neither free from tribulation nor helpless in tribulation, but victorious over tribulation. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote many other wonderful hymns. He is one that we don't sing very often. I did think about singing it, but I wasn't sure whether the the band were up for it, it, but um, a good (laughs) modern songs, but maybe not this one. (laughs) But here's what it says in the the song. "Begone and believe. My Saviour is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and He will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Over a century later, another man had had a very terrible experience, a man called Horatio Spafford, an American. He lost his four daughters when an ocean liner sank in the Atlantic. Only his wife was saved. And he wrote another hymn. We're going to conclude our service with it in a little while. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. And I hope when we sing that, you can sing it from experience. Whatever, peace like a river, storms, crises, Christ is with us. That's the first lesson. But the lesson for the disciples isn't finished. Because as they finally reach the other side of the lake, they face a fresh challenge. Secondly, facing danger, facing demons verses 26 to 39 there's some confusion about the name of the place where they land and you can see the footnote in the bottom Gerasenes, Gadarenes, Gergesenes I could talk for another 45 minutes or so about the different scholastic opinions of this it will not help you in your Christian life whatsoever it's just a place on the other side beginning with G, whatever you want to call it alright um, what, what is important is that the destination, again, is no accident. This is a planned trip. Even the storm cannot blow Jesus off course. He's got an appointment with a man on the other side, though the man doesn't know it. It does not frustrate his plans. The other side of the lake was Gentile territory. We know that because there are tombs and pigs, which run unclean animals to Jews. But Jesus, rather than avoiding it, as a strict Jew would probably have done, intends to step ashore, so demonstrating that his authority extends not only over the sea, but over Gentile territory. See, that's, that's the theme we've been looking at in Luke's Gospel. It's what the shepherds were told by the angel. Good news, great joy for all people. That's why we're here this evening. Most of us were not born Jewish by birth. Following Christ is not a Jewish religion. It is for all peoples on earth. For the Jew first and then the Gentile. Remember, again in Luke's Gospel, right at the beginning, you remember when their parents took him into the temple and the elderly Simeon who had been waiting for this all his life. He took the baby in his arms and he said, Now let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Gentiles, And Jews. Good news for us. Good news for the world. Now, the place where the boat lands is riddled with tombs, probably hollowed out of the limestone cliffs. For Jews to associate with the dead, again, made them ceremonially religiously unclean. It's a place to be avoided and then to crown it all as the boat lands, there's a welcome party, a one-man welcome party, a hideous figure, a violent and terrifying apparition known to all who live there as possessed by demonic powers which imbued him with supernatural strength so that even chains could not hold him. Naked, cut and bleeding, he was the kind of man you avoided at all costs which is why he'd been driven out from human society what you call a worst-case scenario. Can Jesus deal with this situation? The disciples are about to learn that the authority of Jesus extends not only over Gentile territory, but over the devil and all of its minions. The description of the encounter between Jesus and this man uh, raises all sorts of questions to the modern mind. At one time, it was confidently asserted that what the New Testament calls demon possession was simply a first century description of some sort of mental psychosis or multiple personality disorder or to blame the condition of the man on a chemical imbalance or an inherited genetic predisposition to violence or attribute it to some history of abuse as a child. All of those factors can take place. But when all these are identified, there still remain cases which cannot be attributed just to mental or psychological causes. No, if we take the teaching of Jesus and the Bible seriously, we must come to the conclusion, which interestingly, many in our society are at last facing up to, that there are malevolent forces at work in our world who on rare occasions literally take over a person and devastate his or her life. The Bible calls this evil mastermind. Behind this activity, various names, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, Apollyon, describes the evil powers who do his bidding as demons. So we see in this story that these demons imbue this man with the supernatural power causing him to self-mutilate and that they speak through him and yet are distinct from him. No one has been able to tame him. Not until this day in this decisive encounter in which there are two key questions. Look at the questions. First of all, the question the man asked Jesus. Jesus, we learn, as soon as this man had come forward, had immediately commanded the spirits to come out of him. But the man responds with a question. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. It's very interesting that unlike human beings, even religious experts and disciples who were still puzzling with the question about Jesus, Who is this man? The powers of evil recognised Jesus immediately as the son of the most high a term commonly used by non-jews to describe god it's believed in those days that if you knew the name of a person you could then control them and in this case the naming of jesus has no effect jesus as we sing is the name high overall before which devils and demons fear and fly and so he turns the tables and he asked the man a question in turn jesus asked him what is your name Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. The clash of names represents a clash of authorities because your name indicates your power. And this is no contest. Despite the multiple demons, a legion of soldiers in the Roman army was around 6,000 men, varied in different places. Despite this, the demons recognised that their number is up. And they repeatedly plead with Jesus not to send them to the abyss. The word abyss is literally the Greek word, abousos. The place believed to be the place of departed spirits awaiting final judgment day. Now, there are many things we don't know about this story. It's a very unique story. But it appears that such powers need to inhabit some some animate being. If not a human being, an animal will do. And so they plead to be allowed to leave the man and go into the pigs. And Jesus gives permission and the result is just what the demons had feared. The pigs are thrown into such a frenzy that they plunge lemming-like over the cliff into the sea where they are drowned. The sea that had threatened to destroy the disciples now drowns the pigs and the demons with them. And the outcome, of course, is that the demons are defeated. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, the herd rushed down the steep bank, into the lake and was drowned. Very interesting that many people criticise Jesus for this story. Why did he destroy all these pigs? 2,000 we learn from another gospel. One writer points out the demonic spirits ignited the rampage that led to their destruction, not Jesus. But the story is meant to tell us that people, even this one desperate individual that nobody cared for, people are more important than pigs. And whales. And other animals. Because that's the order God made it in. Does it mean we should despise animals? But it means that man is the crown of God's creation, male and female. And that this man is of great value to God. May I just pause for a moment to say, you may think you're the most worthless person in the world. I simply want to tell you, if it's no encouragement to you, I hope it is, that you're more important than pigs. And you're of great value to God. And maybe your life is in a mess like this man. Maybe you'll be set by all sorts of problems and habits and forces, even demonic forces that work even today in people's lives on rare occasions, much more rarely than perhaps some people would say, but it's very apparent in many parts of the world. And I simply want to say to you that the power of Jesus extends to you and the love of Jesus extends to you. But the story also tells us something very significant. Another commentary by the American Darrell Bock, he writes, It is clear that the removal of evil is always costly, the loss of the swine graphically pictures the cost of purging evil, as will another death on the cross. So it was a costly business to destroy evil. So the demons are defeated, the demoniac is delivered, and the herdsmen, seeing what had happened, rush off back into the town to tell the inhabitants the remarkable events, and the people flock out from the town, and they discover when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet dressed them in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, notice again, the story concludes, we're almost there, the story concludes with two requests to Jesus. One he refuses, one he accepts. The first he accepts that all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear, so he got into the boat and left. Just as the demons begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. So, the people plead with Jesus to leave their region. And in both cases, Jesus agrees to their request despite the consequences which follow. In the case of the people, it does not mean immediate destruction. But it will mean ultimate destruction if they continue to reject the Most High God. People are invited into God's kingdom, but they are not coerced into it. Let me speak to those of you who aren't Christians yet. Some of you have been thinking about it. And as you begin to touch these events, you realise this is not just some kind of religious club. God is at work powerfully by His Spirit. And when people are faced up with that, sometimes the challenge can be such that people would rather push Jesus away than welcome Him in. I've seen that sadly in my pastoral life over many years people with problems, people with difficulties. They come and seek some help. And then they realize it's more than just sorting out your problems. This Jesus is Lord. Lord, He wants to be of your life. Not just a problem solver, but the one who wants to rule over every area of your life. And when you realize that, it can sometimes be a very fearful experience. Do I really want this Savior in my life? Maybe you're that kind of person. I simply tell you this with sadness. If you ask Jesus to leave, he will. But if you invite him in, he will gladly come into your life and make a world of difference. The coming of Jesus disturbed the status quo and their economy. They'd have been happy to sacrifice one man for a load of pigs. So rather than risk further upset, they asked Jesus to leave. Very significant, at the end of his life, when Jesus was on trial... What did the people say? They said, we will not have this man to rule over us, crucify him. Didn't want him. But the story finishes with the request refused. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told over all the town how much Jesus had done for him. See, the man's request is understandable. He now wants to follow Jesus. He loves Jesus. But Jesus has a better role for him. To go and tell the story in his hometown, the word used there, to go and tell, is literally preach. He went and preached over all the town how much Jesus had done for him. While well, I was reflecting on this. I, I came in on the bus the other day, picked up one of those Metro newspapers, and there was an interesting article, and it described how a rather dowdy company that made jeans, its whole company had been revolutionized by the activities of, and I quote, 1,000 Brand evangelists. There's a company called Bzz Agents and the Busy bee. And they get people just by word of mouth to go around and tell people about their products. And it says they've discovered inverted commerce that word of mouth marketing is highly effective. Hmm. Quite right too. How much more so? Those of us there's a picture at the website if you want to look at it, The most effective witnesses are those who've had an experience, a personal experience. Not that they've been paid to tell people about Jesus, but that you know about Jesus and you want to share with Him naturally. Word of mouth evangelists for Jesus. And I simply ask you again, have you got a story to tell? Then Jesus wants you to go home, tell other people about it, those you know, your network of friends. Let me just finish where I began. Um quite a few people asked me whether I was afraid diving with the sharks and the children were somewhat amazed to learn this morning that I could honestly say I was not at all afraid for a very good reason. Well, it's only 10 feet deep but the shark was 10 and a half foot long but uh, the very good reason was that we didn't dive alone. Both I and the other guy both had an f- experienced diver alongside us who gave us clear instructions, was with us at all times and he said, in any emergency just signal and we'll go up and you'll be safe. <laughs> So I wasn't afraid at all. I quite enjoyed it. Now the reassurance to us as we try to learn these lessons, learning with Jesus for all disciples is that we are learning with Jesus. We can trust him. We can trust his word because he's with us. That's our great hope and our confidence. Well let's sing about that in a great older hymn and then we'll come around the Lord's table as Rodney leads us.